My eldest daughter was circumcised because at the time my in-laws were alive, so they put a lot of pressure. I was cut because this was the way of thinking 42 years ago. It was the tradition that everyone followed here in the countryside. Munani is 42 years old. She lives in a small village outside of Mansoura, Egypt, the country in the Middle East with the highest rate of circumcising girls, called female genital mutilation. Welcome to this month's edition of Mideast Junction. I'm Anne-Marie Basada. Female genital mutilation, or FGM, has become so ingrained in tradition and social norms that people have only recently begun to question it. I was still not as mature as I am now, so I let it happen. But since I've watched many programs on TV and gone on the internet, I'm more aware of the serious risks now. Now I have three girls, and the first one was cut because I didn't know any better. But now I won't let the other two get cut. What is FGM? We'll go by the official definition by the World Health Organization, which says all procedures involving partial or total removal of the female external genitalia or other injury to the female genital organs for non-medical reasons. Unlike male circumcision, female circumcision has long-lasting medical and emotional impact. There is no proven medical reason to do the procedure, and it can have deadly outcomes. Under international law, FGM is a human rights violation, torture, and extreme form of violence and discrimination against girls and women. But it's a topic that many women and men are reluctant to speak about. And one of the main reasons it continues today is simply because people don't talk about it and merely accept it as a fact of life. But that's changing, and particularly in countries where the rates are the highest. Mona Ali agreed to introduce me to her family, including two of her three daughters. Her first daughter nearly died after hemorrhaging from her operation. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience when it happened and how it happened? Because you said everybody was doing it, but did you know it was going to happen? I was 12 years old. I didn't know what was happening at all. The midwife came and with a blade and she just cut it. I thought I had done something wrong, that I was being punished for it. I didn't understand what was going on. Did you try to to ask your mother, your grandmother afterwards what happened? Yes, I asked them and they told me everybody does this. It's normal. But I had pain and I couldn't walk properly and my vagina was disfigured. To this day, do you still have um, medical problems from this? No, but I need plastic surgery to get rid of the disfigurement. I can't get that done because they are against plastic surgery here in the countryside. The people say it's a part of the body that no one sees, so why bother and waste money? Medical problems during and after FGM are common, and the procedures can take many forms. 
We use four main types and this has been an effort in trying to really consolidate a practice. We know that in reality, there might be huge variation even within a single country in terms of what exactly it's done, at what age and by whom. Claudia Kappa is a senior advisor on statistics at UNICEF and author of a comprehensive 2013 report on FGM and a recent one published this year. The four big categories, I mean, we, that we have really are organized around the severity of the practice. It can go as simple as being an incision, for instance, to a situation in which there is an incision and the flesh is removed. Or it can also be an extreme case where there is the removal of the flesh that is accompanied with infibulation, which is when the labia are sewn closed. A paper published in 1985 by Leonard J. Kuba and Judith Moasher outlines these four types. The first, called mild suna, is a pricking of the tip of the clitoris, which leaves little to no damage. The second is a cutting, or total removal of the clitoris. The third, called clitoridectomy, is when the clitoris is removed, as well as part of or all of the labia, the outer lips of the vagina. And the fourth type is called infibulation, or pharaonic circumcision. It's the removal of the clitoris, the labia, as well as the inner walls of the labia majora. The edges are then sewn together, and when it heals, it forms a wall over the vaginal opening. A small sliver of wood or something like that is inserted to keep open a small hole so urine and menstrual fluid can pass. These procedures can cause complications. It can go from pain and bleeding at the moment of the procedure all the way to death. And there have been uh, several cases of immediate death. And in between, you have complications that can go in all the way through, for instance, uh, a pregnancy and delivery for women. There can be problems urinating. Um, so having intercourse might be associated with extreme pain. Uh, girls who are infibulated might be reopened, for instance, either like through sexual intercourse or to other ways prior to the marriage, so which brings risk of infections, among other things. So these procedures are normally performed in non-hygienic conditions. But even when they are, like for instance when the practice is performed by a health personnel, which is the case in many countries, and actually it's a growing trend in countries like Egypt, there might be still several risks of complication. In Egypt, most women undergo excision or clitoridectomy, and medicalizing the practice is one way Egypt has gotten around a ban on FGM, as explains Reda Aldenbuki, a human rights lawyer and executive director of the Women's Center for Guidance and Legal Awareness that's based in Mansoura, Egypt. It's against the law. It used to be a felony. Now it is a crime. Now, if a family member is found guilty, he or she will go to jail for a year to two years. If it is a physician, it's up to seven years. But the problem is, if the parent reports the physician, the parent can be charged as well. So we want to change that and give immunity to the parent who reports the physician. We also want to remove the link between circumcision and the medically required circumcision because there is no medically required circumcision.
Back at Muna Ali's house, her friend, Asa Hassan, arrives. She's fully covered in a black niqab, and in a small village like this one, she's visibly worried that people might see her speaking to me. But she wants to share her story. I'm reminded that when I was young, it was a very, very painful subject for us, so I still carry the memory of it. How old were you when it happened to you? I was about 10 or 11 years old, and the man who did this wasn't a physician, but he was known to do it. And when he arrived in the neighborhood, all the girls knew what it was about, so they would get very upset and start crying and screaming. When it was my turn, I was waiting in line and I was very scared. And when it was my turn, he looked at me and said, no, she's too young, maybe next year. So that meant I was anxious and worried for the year until he came back. You, you, so you said when you saw the men coming into town, everyone got scared. But mm. so what did you know about it? What had you heard? We knew that he was going to cut something, but we didn't know exactly what. No one told us. So that's why we were so scared. But we knew some girls had had something done, but we didn't know what. It's not unique to Muslims, not unique at all. It's not a must in the Quran. It's an option. If there is a need for it, if the clitoris is too big, for example, then there is a need for it. But otherwise, it's not a religious obligation. So when it was your turn a year later, what happened? What was the experience like? You heard the men coming into town? When it happened, the following year, I had to give in because I knew it was going to happen anyway. But it was very, very painful. They had to hold me down. And for anesthesia, all they did was just a couple sprays of something, which did nothing really. So I felt all the pain, and I hated the experience. The physical pain is nothing, though, compared to the emotional, psychological pain, which is very extreme. What did you feel afterwards when you realized what had happened? It was a very difficult experience. My father left the house because he couldn't stand the screaming. My mother left and went to the neighbours, and I felt two strangers, a man holding me and another stranger doing the cutting, which was very, very emotionally painful. Did you say something to your parents afterwards? No, we didn't talk about it, because my parents were both upset about it. They didn't like it, but they knew it was the tradition, and they have to respect the tradition. Despite the pain and memory Asa went through, she still felt the tradition had to be respected, though she approached it differently when it came time for her own daughter. When it came to my own daughter, I was in between yes and no. So I consulted a physician, and he said, yes, the clitoris is a bit big, so it should be cut. But I took her to a clinic where there was proper hygiene, so it was done properly. But my daughter was upset about it, and so was my husband, because he was scared for her. He was worried something bad could happen to her. As Asa points out, she had a doubt and sought a medical opinion. In this case, the doctor at a private clinic said her daughter needed the operation. 
He charged her 1,400 Egyptian pounds, about 80 euros, which is a lot for most families living in rural areas. This shows that despite the laws, FGM is still happening, practiced by doctors who benefit from the lax enforcement of the laws in the country. Mona and Asa talk about tradition. FGM is all about tradition, and Reda, the human rights lawyer, says there are a lot of ideas about why it needs to be done. They are worried about two things. Firstly, some people believe it causes a bad odor, so it's clean to remove it. Secondly, it can make a woman more sexually aroused, which can lead to fornication. So it is the honor of the woman. They want to protect her from these sexual urges. And the procedure has been happening for a long time. Circumcised women had been discovered among the mummies of ancient Egyptians. The famous Greek historian Herodotus also noted circumcision being practiced on both men and women in Egypt during the mid-5th century BC. But some scholars have found traces of it thousands of years ago, well before the establishment of any of the world's major religions, Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. According to a publication by scholar Jerry Mackey, one way for a slave trader to get more money for his slaves was to sew up the young woman. Her chastity would fetch a good price at the market. Another explanation relates to a woman's worth at marriage. If her virginity is 100% intact, then she's worth a lot which is generally guaranteed by FGM, particularly the most extreme procedure which closes up the vagina. It also keeps her safe from rape. And ultimately, with the clitoris being removed, she is supposedly protected from any sexual desire and promiscuity when the husband is not around. All of that translates into a common theme in today's explanations, as Claudia explains. The number one reason that is provided is social acceptance. It's for girls a way to recognize that she can be part of the community, she can be married, her virginity is preserved, so it has to do with social norms. And it crosses borders. The practice made its way historically from Egypt and the Horn of Africa into neighboring regions. So the practice of female genital mutilation and cutting can be found across a swath of countries that are mostly concentrated in Africa. However, We know that the practice also exists in many countries in the Middle East and in some parts of Asia. So currently there are 200 million girls and women who have undergone FGM in their lifetime. Of these 200 million, 50 million girls and women have undergone the practice in the Middle East of Northern Africa, which accounts for one in four of the global total. In the Middle East in particular, Egypt has the highest rate of FGM. Other places in the region include Iraq, Iran, Yemen, and Oman, but the numbers are generally limited to under 1%. On the African continent, however, Somalia has the highest rate with nearly all girls being cut, followed by Guinea, Djibouti, and then Egypt. In Egypt, according to UNICEF and a report just published by Reda's Center, 92% of women between the ages of 15 and 49 have been cut. That's about 31 million women. Reda explains it's something found in all layers of society. So is FGM something, that, a tradition that we find in a specific class of society or we find it 
in the countryside, in the city, it's everywhere. It is among all the classes, but the poor classes have it much more than the more educated, economically advanced classes. It is legally forbidden, it is religiously forbidden after the fatwa from Al-Hazar, and medically it is forbidden because of the complications. It is present in all of them, but at the end they understand it is not the right thing to do. But at the same time, when it touches the honor of the woman, it becomes very sensitive and they are afraid to do anything there. People are afraid to fight back, but not everyone. Across Egypt and in neighboring countries, there are moves, and the key to stopping FGM is awareness and speaking out against it. People like Reda and his center have played a major role in raising awareness. We hold workshops to make people aware, and each workshop has around 25 women. So more and more, I'm optimistic that eventually the world will also be on board to end FGM. Well, it worked for Mona Ali. I saw the programs on TV, and I attended some workshops and lectures, and I met Mr. Redder. And then I looked it up online, and I learned about it. Some people have died from it. It can cause hemorrhages. It can cause infertility. It can cause disfigurement. So I'm against it. She talked about this to her friend, Asa, who now regrets getting her daughter cut. But another key part of changing traditions is educating the men. There are a few men against it who understand that it shouldn't be done. But there aren't many of them. And the final word in any household goes to the man to decide yes or no for circumcision. In her household, that final word once belonged to her husband, Mahmoud. But after nearly losing his daughter to FGM, he reluctantly left the decision in the hands of Mona and his daughters. But still, he believes a cut woman is a better one. It creates problems because if her parts are left intact and they are a little bit large, it can cause friction when she puts her pants on, and friction will create the urge to have sex. It will turn her on. When you hear about the the education that's coming now about FGM, that a woman doesn't need it or it creates more harm than good, how do you react to that? Well, even if there is a hemorrhage, it's not because of this. A hemorrhage can happen from other types of cuts, and this part is extra. It should be removed. Regardless of all the explanations put forward to justify FGM, Asa sums it up best. I don't like the idea that they try and change what was created like this. It was God's will, and no one should come and change it. 
That's it for this edition of Midi's Junction. Special thanks to all my guests who bravely spoke to me, and to Hani Besada and Michelle Besada for their help with these interviews, and to Erwan Rom for mixing the support. If you haven't already signed up to Midi's Junction, you can do so on your favorite platform. And don't forget to rate the podcast. It helps others find it. Join me next month on the last Saturday of December for another look at the region. Thank you.